0: or uh, davis or uh, davis angela or uh, davis or uh, davis yo hello we're here this is ergo it
1: is indeed i am excited and proud i'm kiss i am damon and i imagine some of y'all might be hearing us for the first time just based on the circumstance um for for those who don't know and for those who do what we do here on ergo is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our city The world for the more equitable and creative. Over the last five plus years, we've been in conversation with organizers, writers, musicians, rappers, thinkers, changemakers, tastemakers, people who have been doing the important culture work to push liberatory social movements forward. And we're going to keep doing it,
0: I think, after this one. But it kind of feels like a culmination. You'll hear in the conversation, it's hard to put in words the impact of our guests. It's even hard to, like, you know, do a bio. (laughs) We'll be simple. We have with us Black revolutionary, the one and only Angela Davis. Oh, my God. We are so grateful and so proud to have had this time with, with, you know, the one and only Angela Davis. Um, And we're humble and we're grateful um, and really thankful. So we want to shout out some folks in our community that not only make this conversation happen, but, like makes this show possible so definitely shout out and thank you to to robin kelly and, and barbara ransby on the correspondence helping us get there Um, and on a larger level like shout out to like the black feminist tradition and the black women in our community in movement in our space in our education keisha scott shauna benjamin lakeisha johnson and all of the organizers and educators that that have put us in the transformative place we are now we're ergo can have a conversation with angela davis are you kidding me <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean you
1: said to me as we were preparing to do it like this is a long way from it's like thursday at 11 15 and we're on the radio in hyde park and we're like who's within like a one mile radius that we can get to come up on the show <laughs> this was maybe a little bit more prepared and i think we're going to talk more about that process uh on another episode but we're just so excited to get to share this conversation with you
0: and friend daniel i would also like to thank you Thank you for all of your work and helping make this show possible. This collaboration, this conversation is a dream come true. Uh, and in many ways, it wouldn't have been possible with, without your work and labor. So so thanks for all you do and helping making this possible.
1: Oh, of course. I can't imagine who else I'd want to be having this conversation with and continuing this incredible collaboration together with. All right. so one bit of housekeeping before we get into the interview. Make sure that you subscribe, comment, review Ergo on your podcast apps, share the episode with a friend, check out our website ergoradio.com, one to find all the other episodes, but also we have uh, a list of organizations and places that you can donate to and support who are doing meaningful social movement in this time and I'm sure could use the support. We also have an Ergo reading list and dj mixes and curated playlists and we've done a whole bunch of stuff that we hope you find your way to and enjoy but today let's get to our conversation with the one and only angela davis let's do it i would say honestly my heart is a a flutter i don't use a flutter often on the <laughs> air but this is a really special moment and a and a wonderful conversation i'm excited to get into folks Angela Davis is here.
0: Ba, 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 ba. <laughs>
2: yes. <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> so I know you like just being called Angela. So I'm trying yeah. to like resist my Miss Davis and my Miss Angela. I've, I've and been, Dr. Davis. And do, and all, you know, that. All, all of the. So one of the tensions we're going to fight here um, is I want to make it very clear to our audience how significant it is to be in conversation without taking all the time of like fawning over you in the way that I know you, <laughs> n- you don't want to do. Um, so with that, I want to ground. We have a tradition here at Ergo, and we start our conversations with a two-part question. Um, and that question is, in this time, and define time however you will, this time could be this hour, this day, this season, or this lifetime. In this time, how is the world treating you, and how are you treating the world?
2: Well, actually, um, I'm doing quite well. First of all, let me thank you for inviting me to participate in this project. Uh, uh, A number of my friends have urged me to do this. So it seems (laughs) as if you're doing really important work uh, uh, at this time. Um, But, you know, even though I'm actually doing fine, um, I'm I'm always concerned about um, what is happening to other people during this period of the uh, pandemic, uh, the impact of the person who currently, but not for long, occupies the office of the presidency. So I always like to think of my own well-being in context. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and and I can never actually relish uh, uh how i'm feeling without thinking about the pain and suffering that so many people in the country in chicago in the world are experiencing but thank you for asking
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah and and so i want to go as we're talking about this time like within the last year or so we're so excited to to have you to be able to process this transformational um, and really turbulent but i think opportune moment that we've been in coming out of Uprising, coming with now a new popularization of radical politics, of abolition, of abolition feminism. Uh, I want to go to a very specific moment because, you know, Angela, you mean so much to me personally, Uh, Mm -hmm. you, you know, you. The first assignment I got when I got to college uh, was to <laughs> was from Professor Lakeisha Johnson, who made me watch an Angela Davis speech in my Neo Soul Feminism intro freshman class. Uh, wow. And so from that moment, uh, but you have been a part and a leader in a tradition that has changed my life. And I wanna ground that to, to understand a little bit of your humanity uh, because with how important you are, there was one image that brought tears to my eyes. And that was this summer, in Oakland during the midst of uprising, you in the car with thousands of people surrounding you fist in the air. What was that for you on a human level, emotionally, all of the, the people that you've seen in the struggle through the decades that we've lost. Like I, 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 I felt all of that power and a moment of victory, seeing you with your people. So what was that moment like for you? Cause that image is so iconic.
2: That rally took place. That mobilization took place on Juneteenth. Mm. Mm. Uh, And it was actually organized uh, by the ILWU, the International Longshore Workers Union, Mm. uh, with which I have had a very, very long relationship. The ILWU was uh, a very prominent force in the campaign around the demand for my freedom. The ILWU helped to spark the anti apartheid movement here in this area by refusing to unload Israeli ships. Uh, the ILWU shut down all ports on the West Coast uh, around the demand to free Mumia Abu Jamal. So I could continue. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I said um, during my uh, remarks at that rally. Um, that uh, I I had always um hoped to be a member of of that union because mm-hmm. it was one of the most radical and consistent uh, formations that that I've been familiar with well they made me an honorary member so. I was I was
1: going to say you're going to have to start offloading some ships
2: <laughs> well you know?
1: exactly
2: exactly exactly uh all working in a warehouse mm-hmm. because it's a you know, longshore worker and warehouse workers union. Um, Mm -hmm. So that moment uh, was so powerful. Let me tell you what I was thinking about uh, at that time. I was remembering another uh, demonstration that took place uh, in exactly the same location uh, uh, at the port. The the previous uh, mobilization happened in connection with Occupy. Mm. So that would have been 2011. And I can remember seeing the faces of so many people with whom I've worked over the last decades. Uh, And many of the older participants, uh, people around my age, uh, were so excited and were saying, uh, this is it. We've made it. The revolution has come. This was in 2011, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Narrator voice, it
2: didn't. Exactly, exactly. So in 2020, when that mobilization happened, I said that we were about nine years too early. Uh, uh, This is the moment that launches uh, a radical change in this country. But it was so powerful, and uh, I'm so... Happy! I had the opportunity, even under the conditions of of, of COVID nineteen, uh, to be present and to witness that collective imagination and that collective spirit. Mm. Wow, I mean, this the the metaphor we've, we we
0: overprepare for this conversation. I just want to put that <laughs> we have like five <laughs> hours of cova- of questions, and we know we only have an hour of your time. But one of the metaphors is grounded in um, an important other movement figure that that also really helped shape the consciousness of this show, and that and that's Grace Lee Boggs and Jimmy Boggs, um, and 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 they have this tradition of young activists, young movement builders coming into their living room and sitting at their feet. Um, and that's kind of what I like proverbially feel. I feel like I'm in your living room mm-hmm. and at your feet. Um, and so this show for the last five years as as movement participants and documentarians, we've been trying to build this archive and ask these questions. Um, and there's one question I've asked my, my elders and my leaders, I've asked Barbara, I've asked Robin that I would really love to get your perspective on because even the way you just answered that question, I think your experience really transcends time, right? And so you could put, 2011 in conversation with 2020 and conversation with 1972. And it's about movement and the way in which it has been a struggle to sustain. And it feels like the Black Liberation Movement, Black Liberation as a Tradition, which I name as my spiritual tradition, has had like three big attacks on it. Obviously, the repression of the nation state fascism uh, that you are you know, your experience so clearly speaks to. Um, Secondly, which we talk also a lot about is co-optation, right? And like the Democratic Party and like liberals kind of like getting in the way or people selling out. But then there's like a third leg to that stool. Um, And I think it's internal conflict and schism and trauma and harm and and struggles for accountability. Um, And I read conflicts about like the Scottsboro case in the thirties that mirror things I I heard in in Black Lives Matter space in 2016. And that's really disheartening for me because it feels like we have so many lessons about fascism and about liberal co-optation, but I would really love your perspective, your observations, your patterns of the ways in which internal conflict and and schism within our liberatory spaces actually disrupt our capacity to build liberatory movement. And if you've learned Mm -hmm. any
1: like, Tactics. Anything we can just bring back to the to the meeting. <laughs> mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. Well, I think I'm probably going to respond to that question um, a bit differently. Um, Feel free <laughs> from uh, your expectations, of um, uh, Because, I mean, I, I guess I, I, I want to start by saying that uh, not all conflict is bad. Mm -hmm. That conflict can give rise to new ideas and new approaches. Uh, And and I think we have to learn how to cohabit with conflict. Uh, Now, there's some issues that uh, arise uh, repeatedly, uh, and they are historically rooted. And I think we have to be aware of these issues that are are disruptive and prevent us from moving forward. One of them, I would say, are the masculinist assumptions around the very notion of Black liberation. Uh, mm. You know, how long has Black liberation been considered liberation of the Black man? Uh, one only has to uh, read um, Frederick Douglass' uh, autobiography to discover how uh, patriarchal uh, his approach was, which is not at all to diminish uh, the importance and the historical significance of of, of his voice, uh, but even today, when there are attacks on the very process of black liberation, uh, we often revert to a masculinist approach, and 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 and, and we forget about gender, we forget about uh, what we've learned uh, from feminism, uh, the importance of intersectionality and intersectionality of struggles. But what I was gonna do was to talk about uh, my involvement with a group years ago at the University of uh, California Santa Cruz when I was still teaching there. And I was involved with a formation we called Research Cluster for the study of women of color in collaboration and in conflict. And the name of the organization was so awkward because (laughs) we realized that we couldn't assume that simply bringing women of color faculty and graduate students together would result in harmonious agreements about collective projects. Uh, So we recognized from the very outset that there would be difference and conflict. And we decided to highlight the importance of conflict and contradiction. Uh, And I can tell you that we were largely inspired by Audre Lorde, uh, who uh, once said that only by living in harmony with your contradictions can you keep it all afloat, Uh, Mm. Uh, You know, another another quotation uh, that I invoke all the time is: "Difference must not be merely tolerated, but must be seen as a fund of necessary polarities between which our creativity can spark, like a dialectic." Mm -hmm. So, I'm I'm making this in order to demystify the the notion that we have to all agree Mm -hmm. in order to act, but getting to uh, what I think you meant by your question. Um, at the same time, we need strategies of conflict resolution, especially around issues of harm. Uh, and what is a hallmark, I think, of uh, the activism of contemporary uh, young people is to regard the questions that used to be always relegated to the private sphere that never entered into our political discussions, uh, to uh, make those questions political issues that can be addressed within political frameworks. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so if we are aware that there is abuse happening in a relationship uh, uh, that involves activists, we can't ignore that. Uh, uh, We have to address it. You know, I really love the the book that Mariam Kaba and Shira Hassan did, Fumbling Toward Repair, which is considered to be a, a how-to a, a workbook for community accountability. And there's also a toolkit by Creative Interventions here in the city of Oakland, uh, and the, the storytelling and organizing project here uh, that I think it's over, it's almost 600 pages. <laughs> yes. It's available online. And there are all kinds of wonderful strategies about, you know, how to begin to resolve the kind of conflict uh, that prevents us from uh, moving forward.
1: I wonder how many pages it's not a kit anymore. Like at some point, it's a tome,
0: <laughs> like we cross over. I know, I know. It's a tool shed, <laughs> not a toolkit. Yeah. <laughs>
2: exactly, so, exactly.
0: So I, I, I want to get into uh, abolition and abolition feminism. And in getting there, I, I, I want to do another tradition in our show that this is going to be a struggle for me. And it's basically affirmation, but I don't know. Are you familiar with the language of gassing someone up, of, of getting gassed up? tell me. That was a a long stare. I love it. So basically, like, when someone's gassing you up, it means, like, they're affirming you, right? So if I were to, like, on a superficial level, gas you up, you be like, your hair and your glasses with that zebra scarf pattern is really popping today. Okay. Uh, (laughs) And so that's a superficial gas up. I want to give you. And and it's going to be insufficient, and I I don't want to uh, overdo it. But um, in getting to abolition feminism, I want to, again, just just personalize and, and thank you for the lifetime of service you've you've given to our people. Um, I've come in the last few years now to to identify liberation and Black liberation as a spiritual practice. And there are ways in which you have been singular or unique in helping to to frame that tradition. And so I I start with this first speech that was assigned to me my first week on campus, right? It was like during orientation um, in which, it was 2010. I don't know if you remember the speech. I think you were in Canada. Uh, but you you were very polite but stern on critiquing Obama's imperialism. Uh, mm-hmm. And you said one sentence very clearly that changed my life to this day and to the question I want to ask. You said, plainly, you cannot be anti-racist without being anti-sexist or without being feminist. Mm. And mm-hmm. as a 17-year-old Black cis man that was very interested in learning about anti-racism, not even realizing that, that you had still been so active, hearing that was a provocation that opened me up to intersectionality and to radical thought and structure, really, <laughs> at, at the basic level. Um, And so I think about that now, I was 17, I now know 15 year olds and 16 year olds uh, that are equipped with the basic language of abolition feminism. And I have taught thousands of people about abolition and I accredit you as one of the, you and George Jackson, as one of the the creators of this tradition that we now take so seriously. Um, And so I wanna start with that of what does it mean to you to know that there are young people, millions of people whose tongue is in the scripture of abolition feminism, and how do you how do you even reconcile or understand that? <laughs> make sense of that, yeah. And I credit it to you also. And so, if if you want to challenge that accreditation, I, I will I will make space for
2: that. Oh yes, I will definitely uh, challenge <laughs> we do. accreditation. We <laughs> um, uh, I you know I would add the Attica brothers. Uh, that was uh, you know my first real encounter with the possibility of. Prison abolition uh, uh, being a real demand. uh, And of course, the work that uh, George did. uh, I always see myself as a part of larger collectives. Uh, I I can't take credit individually for anything that I've ever written or have ever said. Uh, You know, all of these ideas have been collectively produced. And I think it's so important to emphasize uh, the role that movements play in generating knowledge, in generating new ideas, uh, and that so many of those new ideas have come from people in prison. And that is that continues to be the case. Uh, I mean, I, sometimes I wake up in the morning and I still can't believe uh, that we are at this moment. Uh, because many of us who've been talking about abolition for decades now have imagined it in the far future, and have imagined that we would never really experience a moment uh, when it is a part of um, public discourse. Uh, Mm. But of course, that is what we were struggling for. Although, I guess I should say that I have to learn something from myself. Uh, (laughs) because uh, we all all have we
0: all learned something from
2: you you gotta add
1: to
0: the list you're missing out i want to reference you to angela davis she's really said some really cool shit over the years
2: (laughs) no you know because i have said so many times i don't know how many times i've emphasized the fact that we can never effectively predict when change is going to happen but we have to organize and uh, engage in the kind of activism uh, that um, convinces us that it's possible that these changes are going to happen tomorrow, mm. even though there are no guarantees. I, I like Stuart Hall's notion of no guarantees, but we still have to act as if it were possible to change the world uh, And so, therefore, in not believing that we would ever experience the popularization of abolitionist activism, abolition feminism, we were not really taking ourselves seriously. And we were not really believing that we could be the source of change. And I think that that is what this period demonstrates to us more than anything else. It is that the work that we do even when it appears it is having no impact, even when we feel as if we are not in the right temporal moment. This is not our time. The time for abolition is 100 years from now. Uh, um, We have to work as if it were tomorrow. And I think that uh, we now know that the work that the Attica brothers did in 19... you know, 71, uh, and, and and later, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Frank uh, Big Black smiths uh, who's no longer with us, and all the brothers that are no longer here, uh, that their work actually brought about change, even though we might not have been able to see it immediately. Although I should point out that during the early 70s, people took abolition seriously mm. in ways that ceased, later to be the case. If one goes back and looks at at, uh, letters to the editor and opinion pieces in the New York Times, one will see prominent judges and others uh, talking about the fact that prisons don't work. And we have to seek other ways of addressing the issues that prisons purport to but cannot address. Uh, So I'm Excited! I'm so excited. Uh, You're making me excited. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it makes me it makes me recognize the that 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 we really do work on a continuum, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that the work we're doing today was enabled by people who took steps to engage in radical activism 150 years ago, 200 years ago, and that the work that we're doing right now will make a difference in the future. Uh, so it helps us to understand our relationality with those who came before us and those who are coming after us.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, that longitudinal view and that continuum view is so helpful. And it's it's, as you said, wonderful to be reminded and affirmed in that when you see kind of this at-scale shift that it feeds to and causes. But I want to go back to the moments when that wasn't quite as clear in the external response. And there were, I can imagine, and based on what you said and what what we know of the last 50 years, lots of moments where that wasn't the case. What was the process of sustaining in those times where the response was either more punitive or just the, the fervor was kind of pulled back a little bit for, for a variety of reasons. Some of those three reasons that Damon mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. How did that understanding shift by being in those moments where it didn't feel as tangible?
2: For many of us who have been involved for a very long time, we recognize that uh, movements don't unfold at the same level of intensity all the time. There are moments that have to be devoted to popular education, uh, to doing work that does not appear to uh, bring about any fruits in the moment, but that will uh, later uh, express themselves uh, in the context of later organizing and, and, and mobilizations. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about, for example, the ways in which we, uh, decided to create critical resistance. Uh, and that was, um, in 1996, uh, when not a great deal was happening. Uh, (laughs) you know, uh, the crime bill had been passed. This law and order discourse was pervasive, uh, And we discovered that even people who had friends and relatives and mothers and fathers and children behind bars, they were ashamed to have public conversations about that. Uh, So we very specifically decided to use the term prison industrial complex uh, uh, that had been used by Mike um, Davis in an an essay about the transformation of the California economy from an agricultural economy to a prison-based economy. Mm -hmm. So we we decided to use that term in order to enable a different kind of conversation, uh, to move the conversation away from crime and away from punishment as a consequence of crime. So we very explicitly decided to disarticulate crime and punishment. Uh, and we thought that by doing that, we could encourage different kinds of conversations. We could encourage people to look at the prison crisis, because around that time, there were, oh, I would say, maybe a million and three quarters uh, of people behind bars. Not yet two million, because I can remember when uh, two million happened uh, And so nobody was paying attention to this. The organizers who came together, a group of about 20 of us said, you know, we thought that, well, there were few other people in the world. And if we could bring in the country and also in the world, but if we could bring people together, if we could bring several hundred people together to talk about relaunching a movement, uh, uh, that, that we would have been successful. And we expected, you know, a couple of hundred people. As it turns out, Uh, 3,500 people showed up at that conference. Uh, And so we learned that work was happening that we didn't know about, that there were all kinds of projects, community uh, projects, people doing work uh, around women in prison, for example. Uh, And so it was exciting to recognize that the work was actually happening and the conference created the possibility uh, for launching a movement. Uh, we were abolitionists from the beginning, but we thought that we needed to kind of hold on to that and prepare people, you know, for the idea that uh, prisons should be completely abolished. So we really emphasized new vocabularies and new ways of talking about punishment and imprisonment, and that is how we came up with prison industrial complex. Uh, And now, um, the fact that so many young people identify as as abolitionists is is a testament to the fact that the -the on-the-ground organizing work that people do can make a major difference. Uh, They've gone so much further than we could have ever imagined. Uh, and, And that is what inspires us and inspires people to join this movement and to take Abolition seriously, as opposed to thinking that we're crazy. I, you know, I talked yeah. to Henry Louis Gates, uh, who had <laughs> invited me to come and speak years ago at at Harvard, and I gave a talk about abolition. Uh, he told me recently. He said, "I thought you were absolutely out of your mind."
1: Uh, <laughs> he didn't tell you at the time, though. He kept that like that note to himself.
2: Well, he 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 was, I think. Uh, uh, I think he he thought it at the time, but he didn't come right out and say it in that way uh, he was mm-hmm. a little more diplomatic mm-hmm. than uh, um, and then of course he was arrested mm, right mm-hmm. and 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 got to to think about that of course, I don't think uh one should have to be arrested in order to uh recognize how important uh abolition is uh, but yeah it's this is a very exciting moment uh, and it's Exciting because we got to witness when we saw the response to uh, the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. We got to witness how those ideas have transformed so many people's relationship to uh, this country we call the United States
0: of America. So, wow, mm. so much there. I want to get in the weeds a little bit. Uh, but but I just wanna take out some of the gems that I heard that were really important. One, just the importance of language and the intervention of PIC as a way to kind of like steward folks towards a more radical position. Um, I, I really appreciate the distinction between Organizing work and movement. Like you say, this moment in 1996 where there was no movement, but in making a movement space, you saw the legacy of all of this work? Because that's a real big question we've been asking. I want to shout out another mentor, Keisho Scott, who who mentored me and Daniel. Mm, oh, you yes. You know, Keisho, yes. yes. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absol- so, so, oh my God.
2: Me. From her time in Iowa. Yep, yep. We both <laughs> yeah, yeah. went to Grinnell. Um, so, so, oh, okay.
0: So, I, I I studied global feminism, so a social, two social movement courses. And my central question was, like, what to the movement after 1975. We've asked a lot of people, and like what I hear you saying is that the work continued, uh, but we we had to, you know, it took a time to recreate the space. Um, but I want to jump back to where you are just right then at the end of, like, where we were now with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, and, and Tony McDay, and, you know, that legacy that I think we can really use the Ferguson uprising and the murder of Mike Brown as a as a real igniting moment for, for the popular movement that we have right now. But it feels like Policing was more central in our analysis and I think a little bit more visceral because more people experience the police and prisons is such a spatially isolated and alienated from our imagination. But is there any distinction between the work that we're doing around defunding or abolition of policing infrastructure and prison infrastructure? Should we talk about them more in concert? Should we highlight more of the distinctions and be more particular? What is the relationship you see now that the last six or so years we've been emphasizing abolishing the police alongside abolishing prisons?
2: Well, I guess I would say that um, if one looks back at the uh, evolution of these movements, uh, it appears that there have been more organizing and more mobilizations around of uh, what we uh call police brutality or police violence or racist uh uh, uh uh police uh uh than around prisons. As a matter of fact, uh I think that um the mobilizations uh, against uh, racist police have been at the core of the developing Black liberation movement, going all the way back to uh, the uh, era of slavery and the aftermath of slavery. We have always been um, standing up against the police. Uh, I could probably uh, trace my own development as an activist uh, uh, by looking at cases uh, that I was involved in uh, that uh called upon us to make uh, demands uh such as police accountability and uh you know police many tribunals i don't know how many tribunals have <laughs> been in, in, in involved in and I was actually just remembering um the other day in nineteen um sixty nine i was uh, active uh, in los angeles uh And a young man by the name of Gregory Clark, I think it was 1969, uh, who was 18 years old, was shot in the head as he lay on the ground with his hands cuffed behind him, having been stopped by cops who thought that because he was driving a late model Mustang, he must have stolen it. And he was riding with a friend of his, and they were both drinking out of uh, paper bags. So the cop assumed that it was beer, as it turned out. Of course, he had the registration to the vehicle, and they were drinking they were drinking soda. And the name of the cop, I'll never forget it, was Warren B. Carlson. And what we did, of course, we had no social media then. Uh, uh, it was time to mimeograph. Well, what we did... Was we took a photograph of this cop from the television and used that to make a poster that said wanted Warren B. Carlson for the murder of uh, Gregory Clark. And we eventually held a community tribunal in which, of course, he was found guilty. But <laughs> yeah,
1: <I> mean, big, <laughs> big surprise on the outcome there. Yeah. yeah,
2: exactly, exactly. So, but the point I'm making is that the work against police violence has been the most explicit dimension of the struggle for black liberation as long as that movement has existed. Uh, so that um, taking on the question of the prison which, of course, uh, was um, much less uh, uh, public. Uh, Prisons, uh, although they abound, they are usually hidden. uh, And we needed to figure out a way to make that more visible. And I think that uh, implicit in the work that we've done against prisons has always been the need to challenge the police, The police are a part of the larger carceral system so that what we are witnessing now, I think, are explicit uh, uh, developments that uh, think very seriously about what it might mean to abolish uh, uh, these forces that rely on violence uh, to produce safety and security in our communities. I, I want to follow up real quick. The
0: notion of all of that haunt, because even hearing you talk about Gregory in 1969, right? Like I relate to the trauma I and so many activists organizers around me have absorbed. Uh, when we, you know, here in Chicago, Rakia Boyd and, and and Ronald Ronnie Man Johnson, right? Like every year, there are these, these cases that. Are so traumatic and that we absorb and then we, we get to know the families and just the, the notion of sustaining. And so I, I don't want to just wallow in like the harm of the oppression, but start to talk about what repair looks like one for you as a person, right? Just like dealing with holding all this trauma. But then I think the collective process of repair or reparation. Um, and I wanna shout out some work that I do. So I work with the Chicago Torture Justice Center. Aislinn <laughs> Pulley wanted want, want me to say hello and love. Uh, oh and so, yeah, you know, yeah, she's amazing. She's amazing. She certainly is. And so you know, <laughs> work with survivors of, of police torture here in Chicago that got the first ordinance of any type of reparations of state violence against black people in the United States. Um, and we're still struggling in that project, right? And so much of it is is still undetermined and creating new ground. In thinking about all of this violence that we have absorbed and have been resilient and are still resisting, how are you looking at repair and reparations on the human personal level or on the political policy structural state level?
2: Um, Well, first of all, I think I misspoke. The case that I was referring to was in 1968. Okay, Um, gotcha. The scholar um, always checking your work. Making our fact checking (laughs) easy. Look at that. (laughs) Um, And um, I I was talking about uh, Aislinn and thinking about uh, the major contributions that young activists have made to uh, our movements. and. I think that uh their contributions uh that emanate from a kind of um organic and holistic approach encouraged uh, by anti-capitalist anti-racist feminist approaches uh one of the hallmarks of movements organized by young people today is the necessity uh to uh, take into consideration the whole person and the traumas uh, that that people experience, uh, and to think about you know how to engage in reparative processes as we continue to combat and speak out against to call for the dismantling of all of the structural oppressions. Uh, to me, that's so exciting because I can remember when uh, as revolutionaries, we were expected to be only revolutionaries and whatever personal issues we had, whatever traumas we may have experienced, we were expected to leave that at the door uh, when we participated in our revolutionary uh, collectives. And of course, thinking back on that, uh, we were reproducing so many of the same problems that we thought we were contesting precisely because we couldn't see the relationship between the personal and the political. I'm using that feminist slogan, and I think that Black feminists and feminists of color have given that slogan so much more meaning, uh, particularly when I said that you can't really Uh, combat racism without also being opposed to sexism and homophobia and transphobia Uh, of that. That was an insight uh, of, 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 of new uh, women of color feminist formations. Uh, And I think we are now witnessing young activists, uh, young uh, men, women, um, uh, non-binary people who take seriously the idea that as we call for revolutionary change, we have to ask ourselves uh, what kind of um, people will we be (laughs) as we advocate and experience that change. Uh, We don't want to call for an end to structural racism and Discover that uh, so many patriarchal uh, uh, notions and, and presumptions are being carried along in our sense of, of of who we are. So we have to kind of imagine uh, the revolution happening within ourselves and in our collectives and in our uh, relationalities uh, to each other. And that is something that I've learned from young people, and it's so exciting to witness the concrete strategies that have been developed to keep alive this assumption that we have to figure out how to address the psychic damage uh, that has been done uh, and that reparations will be um, a vast uh, uh, constellation of of, of approaches uh, from challenges to the capitalist notion that education and healthcare uh, should be commodities. We have to talk about uh, a, a moment when all of the services that we need as human beings are not commodified, do not cost anything. And then at the same time, we have to recognize our relationship to other living beings on, on this planet uh, and recognize that um, the real damage to the planet has happened because of colonialism and racism uh, and to demand that the environmental movement recognize the intersectionality of of these issues. Mm. So to to that point in
1: this question of who are we saying and working to want to be in this transformative time and process, um, one of the things that's emerged for us through so many of these conversations, and it goes to what you were saying about this continuum, um, but is that This process is not linear, right? So there have been moments of what we like to say, like, people have been in the future before. (laughs) It just uh, maybe wasn't to scale or collective memory forgets or it's erased and actively stricken from the archive. Uh, And so I'm curious if there are moments either that you've experienced or in your study and scholarship and learning that are these moments of future living where people have committed to those kinds of questions of what type of people do we want to be and enacted them uh, that you feel like get erased from the archive or minimized so that we don't have to feel like we have to make it up from scratch all the time.
2: Let me, let me um, talk for a moment about the importance of incorporating um, gender violence into our frame. Uh, uh, Abolition feminism, uh, urges us uh, to think these issues together that we normally think apart. Uh, and that uh, uh, institutional violence or um, public violence or state violence uh, is deeply connected to intimate violence. Uh, and of course, um, organizations like Insight have, have pursued uh, this and. Uh, Uh, But I don't think we have acknowledged the fact that people have been doing this work forever. Rosa Parks, for example, who everyone in this country knows uh, uh, because of her role in helping to produce the Montgomery bus boycott. But people don't know that she was a trained activist uh, Uh, And that, um, I just recently saw a beautiful photograph of my mother and and Rosa Parks together. uh, Mm -hmm. And and Rosa Parks was uh, actually involved in an organization called the Southern Negro Youth Congress, or or she did work with them. I don't know whether she was actually a member. And my mother was an officer of the national organization organized by black communists and others but because of the presence of black communists and people like W.E.B. Du Bois uh, in, 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 in this formation, the historians have up till now completely ignored the work that they did, particularly in creating the groundwork for what we know as the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. Uh, now, I, 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 I was talking about the movement against gender violence uh, and the precedent that we can see with uh, Rosa Parks doing work in 1944 in a town called Abbeville, Alabama uh, to bring justice uh, to this woman, um, Recy, what was her last name? Oh, Recy Recy Taylor. Taylor, Recy Taylor, Recy Taylor, who was raped by uh, young white men who were associated with the Ku Klux Klan. I'm bringing this up because this became a massive international movement. Uh, And as a matter of fact, the connections that were made around the creation of that movement helped to produce the Montgomery Improvement Association, which was the organization uh, that led uh, the bus boycott. But we don't know about this. Uh, And I think that the the larger anti-violence movement, uh, feminist movement that is often um, carceral, uh, that embodies carceral feminism often, because the assumption is that that the way you get rid of violence against uh, women or gender violence is to arrest and imprison the perpetrators. the mainstream anti-violence movement could learn a great deal about the structural character of gender violence. Just as we are now emphasizing the structural dimension of racism, uh, sexism is also structural. I I, I think the representation of, of uh, Rosa Parks as uh, having helped to um, Uh, generate activity that is associated with what we now consider to be the movement against violence against women uh, is so important. But, you know, we only learn to look for these things when we develop insights in the present. Uh, uh, Our position in the present dictates what we look for in the past and how we understand uh, the past. So during another era, there may not have been as much resonance uh, as there is now. Yeah. So, thank, so thank you so much. I know we, we got to go
0: with your time, so I, I, I want to wrap up. Um, I want to offer you the opportunity to, to end in some communal affirmations. Uh, first, just for our audience, some things we were going to ask about that we're not going to be able to get to. This is our segment we call If We Had a Little More Time.
2: If we had
1: a little more time
0: If we had a little bit more time, I would love to get your perspective on like the nonprofit industrial complex, tension and contradiction. Um, Another thing that came up is, you don't have to answer it, just. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> we're just oh, I, out do that. Say, I do want to say something briefly okay. in response to it. Okay. No, and okay. then
0: another one, and I'll just do the second one. Um from a like a, a, a holistic feminist place in the Let Us Breathe Collective, we have space agreements, and one of them is we agree to struggle against racism, sexism, classism, and we list a bunch of oppressive systems. Um and I started getting a holistic, feminist-driven rejection of the notion of struggle, which was like really a challenge for me. And I I would have loved to get a little bit about people rejecting the word struggle from like a very fluid, almost emergent strategy type of of framework. Uh, Mm -hmm. So those are two of the Mm -hmm. big ones I had in terms of if we had more time. I wish we had more time. Did you want to say something? Yeah,
1: if you want to pick one, I know we're just throwing it at you and then then move on. Okay, I'll
2: just say something very briefly. Um, The question of the nonprofit industrial complex is so important uh, uh, because we haven't really, in this conversation, I haven't really emphasized the importance of an anti-capitalist consciousness Absolutely. in the way I should have. Uh, uh, and, You've and, done it and, on record. And, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, but, you know, sometimes we have to be explicit uh, uh, that that when we talk about standing up against the structural and institutional forms of racism, uh, that is very much related to capitalism. Uh, those. Structures and institutions are capitalist structures and institutions, uh, and racial capitalism—the term that uh, Cedric Robinson often uh, is so is so important to emphasize uh, the globality of these issues uh, and the fact that it's not simply in the U.S. that we are challenging racism; it's everywhere in the world that has been affected by colonialism and slavery, and that means literally everywhere on the planet. Uh, So the impact of the nonprofit industrial complex is an example of the contradictory terrain that we try to negotiate. Uh, And we challenge capitalism, and at the same time, we recognize that we inhabit uh, uh, the terrain of capitalism. Uh, And that is one of those contradictions that will be with us until we... um succeed in bringing down capitalism uh, and the nonprofit industrial complex of foundations uh they uh reiterate and reproduce uh, capitalist relations uh, uh i have a lot more that i could say about uh, about that uh you know in- including the fact that i that my lifetime as an activist uh, extends um to a period before the foundations Mm. were so central. And I'll I'll just tell you, sometimes I mention this uh, when I was active in Los Angeles SNCC and um, SNCC and uh, the Black Panther Party. Well, anyway, I I won't talk about all that. I'll just point out that that Rap Brown was arrested, right? Uh, And his bail was $100,000. We raised $100,000 uh, by going door to door with 10 cans. Uh, so we got mostly coins, but some, you know, some bills as well. And we had printed on the 10 cans, let rap rap. Uh, <laughs> <Bars>. <laughs> <laughs> but we raised $100,000. We didn't have any foundations in the- and, uh, so,
0: and relative to inflation, so there, you know, that, that's intense. Yeah, exactly. Right. There was exactly. there was
1: no request for proposals to get them out. Yeah. So we
0: have to be considerate of your time. I want to just throw out this last uh, piece of, of, you know, I've offered you so much love. You deserve so much love. I want to give you the space for three names specifically that are important to this show and that are a big part of how we had, you know, we're able to do this conversation. Um, so real quick. Like what's the first thing that comes, comes to your mind? mind and you I, and I'll them. just say them just for oh, time. Oh my Miriam um, Kaba, Barbara Ransby, and Robin Kelly. Those are the three very important people to oh, us in this show. Okay. And without them, we probably... No, we know we would not have been able to have this conversation with you. So we want to let you shout them out.
1: Also, I wonder who you thought we were going to say,
0: <laughs> which is a different question.
2: Uh, well, you know, there were a lot of people that uh, that you could have said, but I think you chose three really amazing um, participants in our movement. And Miriam Kaba, she is, um, I would say... Um, Passionate, uh, creative, uh, uh, and pioneering. I don't know if that's a masculinist uh, term, mm. but uh, <laughs> she, has, she has created new terrain for us. Let me put it that way. It's just true. Barbara Ransby is someone I've known since she was a graduate student uh, at uh, uh, the University of Michigan. The more I get to know her, and I've really gotten to know her over the last, I would say, 25, 30 years, uh, the the more I appreciate her steadfastness. Uh, uh, She is someone you can depend on, regardless of the circumstances. And her brilliance, her intelligence, uh, her making history available uh, to all of us, uh, and... um, she is someone I, I should say that I traveled to Palestine uh, with Barbara and uh, I uh, would not have wanted to make that uh, trip with anyone else uh, hmm. uh, yeah what more can I say uh, yeah Barbara is the link between generations uh, I, I I mean I I, I I couldn't believe when I was visiting her she was doing a um, political education class with like a hundred other people. <laughs> but I could I could continue. Uh, and Robin. Okay. Robin um, is someone I have known since shortly after he finished his dissertation. Uh, which became Hammer and Ho, correct? Which uh, be- was Hammer and Ho. Absolutely.
0: Which your mother uh, was referenced in.
2: <laughs> and yes, he interviewed my mother uh, uh, for that book. Uh so I, I, I feel a connection with Robin uh, because of the ways in which he has uh, made, uh, I would say, the aesthetic dimension central to our struggles. The whole, uh, the whole notion of freedom dreams, uh, uh, the part that artists and musicians, uh, he, his uh, biography of Monk, uh, set the standards uh, uh, for uh, all biographies to come uh, uh, when it comes to jazz musicians, uh, and I, I love all of them. And uh, you know, thank you for evoking their names. <laughs> Yeah, we thought that'd be a good And we're, we're, we're,
1: and we're gonna send them
0: to it, send that to them also just so that they can have a little bit of warmth, you know. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> good. Thank you so much for being so gracious with your time for going over with us. Um thank you for your knowledge and, and sharing your wisdom, and thank you for this lifetime of sh- of struggle and, and this commitment that you've had to all people and, and black people. Um, you have changed so many lives, you have changed my life. You are a high priestess in my spiritual tradition. <laughs> um and I want to bring in all the folks that made this possible, Black Lives Matter Chicago um asada's daughters byp 100 the alliance yes. brave space alliance and uh, the chicago torture justice center and obviously my political home the let us breathe collective without that community this conversation wouldn't be possible and you weren't just talking to us you were talking to all of them and we love you so much mm-hmm. thank you thank, thank you. you thank you and uh i guess we'll be back with
1: another i can't really can't i think we're we'll, we'll probably we'll just hanging we'll hang, hang it up after this. yeah <laughs> thank you so <laughs>
0: much uh and Yeah. Much love to the people. Peace.